Um, Lord, I thank you for uh, the people that are gathered here uh, together. Lord, may you bless each and every one of them and uh, that uh, they would be able to uh, just just gain from gain knowledge, gain wisdom from uh, opening up your word, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for, for this time, and we give it over to you, Father God. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So like I said, Ephesians chapter 5. I could open my Bible, too. I have a bookmark there, so that, that's helpful. There we go. Um, so uh, the title of my message is Christ and the Church, uh, based on Ephesians 5. And uh, I want to tell you a little bit of, of uh, how I arrived at, at this message that uh, I'm going to be uh, giving today. Um, I'd like to start off with a quote by Pastor John MacArthur of Grace Community Church in California. See, John MacArthur, he's been identified by some as uh, one of the best, if not the best, Bible teachers of our time. Uh, I personally appreciate his faithfulness to the Word of God, uh, his unwavering stand for biblical truth, uh, his keen discernment, uh, and his willingness to call out false teachings and false teachers by name. I recommend his ministry to anyone, and I think he's a, a really great example uh, for us all to follow. So here's his quote, and it, it, he says this, Our calling as gospel ministers is to preach the truth, confront sin, and call all men to repentance and obedience to the gospel. The good news that achieves soul conversion and saves sinners from eternal wrath. So when we speak of gospel ministers, we're not just talking about the pastors and the church leaders. We're not talking about exclusively those types of people. We're talking about each and every one of us, every person who considers himself or herself a Christian. We are called to do what Pastor MacArthur urges here. So the occasion for these words that, that I have on the screen uh, is, is detailed in an open letter that MacArthur uh, has written, and I'll read parts of it uh, to, give, to give you uh, an idea of where he's coming from. He says this, I write to you to call your attention to an urgent matter in which the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is under attack. On December 22nd, I received, this is MacArthur speaking, I received an email from Pastor James Coates of Grace Life Church in, of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. You will remember that he was recently imprisoned for keeping his church open during COVID-19 lockdowns. James's recent email gave me insight into the Canadian government's decision to pass Bill C-4, which directly comes against parents and counselors who would seek to offer biblical counsel with respect to sexual immorality and gender. James indicates that it could be used to criminalize evangelism. So that's quite the big deal, and that's happening very, very near us, right to the north in Canada. Uh, John MacArthur uh, continues, We are well aware of the evil power and the destructive influence of this ideology. Our government is bent on not only normalizing this perversion, but also legalizing it and furthermore criminalizing opposition to it. In 2012, California passed Senate Bill 1172, banning gay conversion alongside New York, New Jersey, and Nevada. In doing this, California government sought to prohibit any correction of an in unbiblical view 
of identity because California has a compelling interest in the protecting and well-being of LGBT individuals. And on August 18, 2020, the Democratic Party declared at the National Convention that it would ban harmful conversion therapy practices. The Obama administration appointed more than 250 LGBTQ plus people to serve in government, and the Biden administration has promised to increase that number, and they have done so thus far. As aggressive as this political priority is to make perversion safe from criticism in the United States, Canada is even further ahead. On November 29, 2021, not too long ago, right? The House of Commons passed Bill C-4, which completely, uh, with a completely unanimous vote, amending the code to include conversion therapy. Since this law takes effect on January 8, 2022, so this law is already in effect as of now, uh, faithful Canadian pastors are going to preach on this issue calling for a biblical understanding of sexual sin, the eternal judgment that falls on the unrepentant, and the gospel-rejecting sinners, and the grace of God in the gospel which offers uh, forgiveness to those who repent and believe in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9-11, through 11, Paul clearly articulates why we must speak the truth. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor uh, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor thieves, or the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. MacArthur continues, all sinners need conversion, but the list focuses specifically on the sexually immoral, the adulterers, the effeminate, who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Our calling as gospel ministers is to preach the truth, confront sin, and call all men to repentance and obedience to the gospel, the good news that achieves soul conversion and saves sinners from wrath. MacArthur asks, Will you stand with me and our Canadian brothers and confront in spirit of love and mercy the damning sins legalized in our culture. If we stand strong in this conviction together, the governmental forces of evil will be put on notice that divine love and sovereign grace compel us to be faithful, to proclaim radical transformation at any cost. This world system and its human governments will gladly send people to hell, but our calling is to rescue people with the truth. So that's all John MacArthur right there, and it's, it's a very urgent matter. When he states that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is under attack, this is not an overstatement. Now, there's a tendency uh, to believe that these sorts of things belong only in the realm of politics, right? There are people who sincerely believe that things belonging to the realm of politics should not be mixed with religious matters. Many hold this weird view that my religion tells me one thing, but my political positions are the exact opposite. And others are in, in another, category, another category, apathy. I don't care, as long as it doesn't affect me. People can do what they want to do, and it doesn't bother me. Then we have a category of people that are militant, right? They're passionate for the cause, but their passion is misplaced. Their cause is wrong. They will insist that you have to be loving with 
these people who are confused about gender and, stu- and such. In fact, they would say, isn't that what Jesus would do? They say, be accommodating of them. Call them the pronouns they want to be called, even if those pronouns were made up on the car right over here, right? These are the ones who would applaud a law such as the one I described, the Canadian law, and tell you that you deserve to get fined or jailed for being unloving. So when MacArthur warns that the gospel of Jesus Christ is under attack, it's not an exaggeration. Now, I believe there are two levels, these sorts of laws, and actually the entire agenda that's the force behind these laws, that that there's two levels uh, that are attack on the gospel. The first one is obvious, right? They're trying to restrict, or at least trying to restrict, uh, what the man in the pulpit says to the congregation. There's an attempt to muzzle the truth, an effort to take a black sharpie and redact the word of God, as if such a thing were possible. Regardless of whether the truth is criminalized, we speak it boldly, for we obey God rather than man. So the second level of attack, I believe, is more subtle and perhaps more sinister. So the purpose of this message that I'm, uh, I have for today uh, is to help us understand that the gospel is under attack, not just because of the efforts to silence pastors' voices. It is under attack because marriage, which includes concepts such as masculinity, femininity, gender roles, and gender identity, it's, it's all a picture of the gospel. And we'll look at the passage and, and we'll see exactly why. When we speak, uh, when, the, when the agenda we speak of redefines what marriage is, uh, when it redefines what a man and a woman is, what the roles for men and women are, when they try to confuse even what gender is and insist that it's something other than a binary situation, it, it, they're actually taking aim at the things that God has defined and established to show us something greater than the things themselves. I'm talking about the gospel itself, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day, and whoever believes in the name of Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. So this is not a trivial academic debate. It's not a back and forth about differing political views. This is something of much greater importance. So for this reason, I felt compelled to teach on this topic. So this message is about marriage, but it's not about marriage. In the same way God told Peter in the book of Acts to kill and eat, but he wasn't talking about killing and eating, right? The same way God told Moses to speak to the rock, and actually Moses hid it instead, uh, but it wasn't about hitting the rock. The same way Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, but it wasn't about a bronze snake on on a pole, right? The same way that the lamb's blood was painted on the doorposts and it saved the Israelites in Egypt from the destroying angel, but it wasn't about the blood of a little woolly creature, right? All these were pictures of something greater. More accurately, someone greater. So with this in mind, let's turn to our text in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife to respect her husband. So in the first part of, of uh, this, we, we see how um, the typical marriage vows might contain these words, to have and to hold, and it points to a certain design for marriage, a certain purpose. We read in verse 30, 31 of Ephesians chapter 5, it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So here Paul quotes Genesis as he explains the profound mystery in this passage. So we should do the same. Let's flash back to the beginning, Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So in, in the beginning, God got to work creating everything in existence. From the starry host to the burning sun and the glowing moon, it all came into being in response to a mere word verbalized by the Almighty. The earth and all the things in it likewise were formed in this way by our, by our powerful maker. The plants and animals of various kinds, uh, the seas and the mountains, all of it. As beautiful and awesome and as masterfully made as this masterpiece that was creation, nothing, could, nothing in it could be said to have been fashioned in the image or likeness of God himself. Nothing that is until day six, when God said, let us create man. Mankind was the crowning jewel of his creation, and God said that it was very good. Next verse, so God created man in his own image, and he created him in the image of God, he created them male and female. So it's worth noting the fact that God created only two general categories of people, right? Male and female. This is what you call a gender binary, that there are only two options with respect to gender. There's no fluidity in creation. God did not create a humanoid being who could decide at some point, uh, when, whenever they were ready, to, to be either male or female, Right? And it wasn't the case that these original persons had the option later on of changing his, her, its, their mind about gender and go a different route. No, God made it so that biology works in a certain way. 
with laws in place, just the same way that laws are involved in chemistry and mathematics and physics. If the all-wise God sought it fit to create them male and female, who does anyone think they are to say, nope, there's more than just two genders? Or, nope, gender isn't even a thing. There are no such things as males and females, right? That's just, that's just a social construct, right? That's what people conjured up you know, millennia ago uh, out of convenience or an attempt to oppress other people or whatever they say these days, right? But that's not what Scripture says. We read on in Genesis 2 where God gives us a more detailed account of the creation of man and woman. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So Adam in the garden by himself was not a good thing according to God. None of the other creatures crawling, flying, or swimming around God's new planet uh, were comparable to the man that God had made from the dust. So God took a rib from Adam and made Eve, who was the helper corresponding to him. There in these words is the implication that God made it so that there was specificity with regards to gender roles and responsibilities uh, of the man and the woman. Adam needed a helper, and it tells us that he couldn't do it alone. Don't I know that, right? He needed help. There were things he was not as well equipped to do that suited the woman's abilities much better. So Eve wasn't a helper in the sense that she was a sidekick or a secretary or uh, a lovely assistant. No, none of those things. She was a companion, the other half that Adam had been missing. The woman being a helper does in no way imply inferiority. In fact, the opposite is true. Recall that God is frequently, especially in the Psalms, referred to as a helper. It is, and, and is said to help us when we are in need. Obviously, being a helper is not an inferior role. We move on in Genesis chapter 2, and Adam commenting, the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. So the pattern is set. We have a man and a woman. They unite and eventually become a father and mother. The man once grown will leave his father and mother to be joined with his wife. And they in turn become a mother and a father And at some point, And they fulfill the mandate that God said, be fruitful and multiply. And so it goes. That's been the pattern since the beginning, and it's the way that God established it. And like I said, it's, it's a law almost, right? It's a law of nature as foundational as the law of gravity itself. Men become fathers and women mothers. You'd think that a concept, even my three-year-old can, can understand and grasp, that I wouldn't even need to say any of that, right? That it goes without saying, that it would be taken for granted, that would be mocked as a comment made by Captain Obvious. But unfortunately, these days, that is not the case. Jesus reiterates these points in one of his many discussions and debates with the religious leaders of his day. We read in Matthew chapter 19, Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? 
And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one. So Jesus himself takes his listeners back to the beginning, back to creation, back to, to basics, right? Things are supposed to be a certain way because God made them a certain way. Male and female and marriage and reproduction, all according to God's design. And he did not change his mind about any of it just because a bunch of millennials or Gen Zers or whoever decide that they didn't like it and had different preferences. So Jesus asks, perhaps tongue-in-cheek, haven't you read? It's right there in black and white, right in the first pages of the book. It's not hiding somewhere in the Minor Prophets section of the Old Testament where few are able to find it. No, it's, it's right there. God wanted us to, to, to know this, to understand it, and it couldn't be more obvious, and it couldn't be clearer. Haven't you read? So we go on to the next section. This part of the marriage vows refers to the fact that things are not always sunshine and roses, but that shouldn't change anything. The commitment should be the same whether things are good or bad. The pattern that God established in the beginning does not change. Never. Going back to Ephesians, we read this. To sum up, each of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. So this was actually the last verse in the passage we read, and he finishes up, Paul does, with some sound advice. Husbands should love his wife, and a wife should respect her husband. But remember, though, Paul isn't doing couples therapy here. He's pointing to something much bigger than just how to get along with your spouse. Peter has something similar. 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure and reverent lives. So Peter here uh, elaborates, and he'll go on in this chapter to elaborate on the conduct and qualities of the woman. There is definitely such a thing as femininity in the minds of the men who penned scripture. When God created them male and female, he also created correspondingly masculinity and femininity, which refer to the qualities and the attributes that characterize the respective genders. Peter continues, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So here's where I go on a little bit of a rant. Um, it says, uh, chivalry, you know what they say about that, right? Chivalry is dead, right? Uh, or at least our culture is trying to kill it and bury it in a grave with a headstone that reads toxic masculinity. I'm sure you've heard the term before. Uh, there's a resistance to anything uniquely associated with manliness or being a man. Because in the minds of many, men have for centuries or even longer, uh, perhaps even from the beginning of time, uh, they've unjustly subjugated women. So we need to stomp on masculinity. And now it's time for girl power, right? But wait, I thought there was no such thing as male and female. I don't know. 
I can't get it straight. Uh, forget femininity. It's all about feminism, which narrows the eyes in a hateful glare at those toxic men, while at the same time desiring to be what they are. No way, says the feminist, is the woman the weaker vessel. Women are every bit as strong as men, maybe even stronger. Women can open the door for themselves. They can open up those jars without the help from a man, right? Before you know it, uh, people, many of whom to, seem to be perfectly rational otherwise, uh, they're claiming that women can actually become men, and men can actually become women. Which is the point that the terms man and woman almost don't mean anything. So all this craziness and absurdity, and it's just nonsense, right? All this that we witness today is possible because of a rebellion long ago against God's design. God did not create it to be a competition between men and women who would win out and become the dominant gender. He didn't do it that way. He created it to be a harmonious wonderful system of interactions and roles and responsibilities that glorifies our wise maker. And it turns out it's what's best for the men and women that he has made. Yet the culture tells us that God's plan is no good. How dare the clay question and point the finger directly at the potter and ask, why have you made it thus? So if you think that's bad, I think even worse is um, that this thinking that I've described has, has actually crept its way into many churches. We turn to a tough passage in 1 Timothy, a passage some people don't like to look at. It's, it's tough for some people to hear, so much so that people will flat out disagree with what it says and, and pretend that it's hard to understand and that we can't really get... Here's what it says. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. So here we have Paul, and he's talking about the role of what we understand a pastor of the church to be, right? And it's as plain as day, right? It can't be about a cultural thing that Paul was dealing with. It's not about a special situation in this one church in Paul's day. Some people try to argue that, but that's not it because Paul ties it to the beginning, right? He takes it back to creation, to the garden, to Adam and Eve. God has set things in a certain order in the church based on the original design of man and woman. Men have certain jobs and women have certain jobs. But what are we seeing these days? Women standing in the pulpit and preaching in direct violation of God's word. It's called egalitarianism, and it's ruining churches across our nation. Again, we see that those distinctions that God made are being blurred and confused by these thoughts and, and these changes of definition, the, the language that people use. We see it, it opens the door to other violations of God's established order. And we see the gospel being distorted as churches deny the God-ordained gender roles. So, you know, before, before I leave this, this part, I don't, I don't want you to hear me say that women are ruining churches. I, I didn't say that. I don't want anybody to hear me say that, right? Because men are just as responsible for, for the slide down the slippery slope. 
And don't hear me say that, that women are inferior to men, that they're somehow second-class members of the church. That's not true at all. So, so let me conclude with, with this section uh, from Galatians, that both men and women are equal as far as our standing with God because of our, of our union with Christ. It says, For those who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belonging to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So the marriage vows that husband and wife speak to one another uh, typically wrap up with, with a phrase or something similar, right? Until, just, until death do us part. Uh, we are reminded that death ends a marriage, but the truth that marriage points to, the mystery that God has revealed in Christ, the, is the very gospel itself, and the gospel is the promise, and it's a vow, if you will, of eternal life in Christ. So we look at Ephesians again. It says, This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So Paul's talk about husbands loving wives and wives respecting husbands, uh, really, it was all about Christ and the church. It's not that Christ and the church is a good analogy, a good representation for marriage. It's actually the other way around. Marriage, a husband and wife for life combination, um, characterized by love, by respect, by the giving of oneself for the good of the other, this is a good analogy for Christ and the church. It was designed by God to be exactly that from the very beginning. is what God had in mind. It's a picture, it's a symbol, it's a representation, a shadow, it's a foretaste. And it all started in the beginning with God creating Eve for Adam. And it continues to this very day, despite the attacks and the distortions and the denials and the lies that are being told. So my point, what I've been leading up to is this. When you mess with marriage and when you mess with gender roles and masculinity and femininity and all of that, you mess with the gospel. You mess with the picture that God has painted that is supposed to represent Christ and the church. And this is a big deal. And it's why we can't just sit around and let it happen and not say anything. So take a look at this phrase uh, in, in verse 32. It says, uh, it's very interesting. Paul called it a profound mystery. Other translations have it as a great mystery. So it's huge, it's profound. You know, trying to get the idea of this word, weighty, it's a big deal. We're, and we're not talking about a mystery in the sense that it's a really good, entertaining Sherlock Holmes novel. So this is what Paul means when he says it's a profound mystery. It, he means that our puny human brains cannot adequately comprehend the spiritual. I'm sure all of us are aware of that. Uh, God shows us, but God shows us, right, he has to reveal it to us. So think back uh, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and his discussion with Jesus. Nicodemus is baffled. He's completely mind-blown uh, when Jesus talks about seeing the kingdom of God and being born again. And Jesus asks him, like, how in the world 
are you going to understand heavenly things if you can't even grasp the earthly? Jesus spoke about being born again. Nicodemus did not get it. He thought that it was about a person going back into, he even said that, like he literally said, a person going back into his mother's womb when he's old, right? But all of this, it was, it was about the Spirit of God breathing new life into a person and renewing him to his very soul. To Nicodemus, he had revealed to him the mystery of the kingdom of God. So going back to Paul's profound mystery in Ephesians, uh, so this, this is a heavy load that Paul just drops on the Ephesian church. It, it, it's something that God in his grace has revealed to them and revealed to us, that we might understand, that we might grasp the spiritual, that we might understand the heavenly, the greater reality. This is Christ and the church. So let's review uh, some of the other things that Paul says in this passage about Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water by the word. So husbands loving their wives in an exclusive and special way is analogous to the way Christ demonstrates his love for us, how he died on the cross for our sins. Again, even though Paul is talking about husbands and wives, what we're really talking about is Christ and the church. Verse 27, he did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. The sacrifice of Christ cleanses his bride and makes her perfect. We are the bride of Christ. Elsewhere, elsewhere Paul writes of this profound mystery, 2 Corinthians, for I am jealous, oh, I'm sorry, I got uh, because I promise you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. And then if we turn to the final pages of our Bibles, Revelation speaks about this marriage and a feast to celebrate the union of Christ to his bride. Revelation chapter 19, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. Then he said to me, right, blessed, blessed are, are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he also said to me, these words of God are true. Going to chapter 21, John, John writes this, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. It continues, Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he carried me away into the, in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So I, I found this quote by uh, Charles Spurgeon. I think it's very appropriate to, to the message. He says, you must be divorced from your sin or you cannot be married to Christ. So this is his uh, evangelistic call in this context. Um, and we have people in our world 
And we have people who are quite powerful and have means and have influence, and they're trying so hard to deny the, the Word of God. They're trying to pretend that the Bible doesn't say what it clearly says. There are people who don't care either way. There's people who make laws and jail pastors, men who obey man, men and women who would obey man rather than God. These are the enemies of the gospel. They are content to let people die in their sins so long as they feel affirmed in this fleeting life. These people we would call to repentance. And to them we would say that the gospel is the power of God for salvation and that no force on earth, no law written by man, can stop it or even slow it down. And then we have men and women who, who sin in this way and they defend their sin by claiming, I was born this way. To them, to him or to her, Jesus would say, you must be born again. You must rid yourself of that sin and cling to Christ. If anyone is in Christ, the Bible says, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So I want to conclude with this glorious promise from Scripture uh, that no matter how a person identifies, no matter how deep a person is in sin, no one is beyond the reach of God he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for, for what you have revealed to us in Scripture, Lord. We know that the words in it are true, that they no, never go out of style, never go out of date. Lord, that we can read it and you will make things very clear to us about many, many topics, many subjects, Lord. And, and what I spoke about today, Lord, you have made it abundantly clear that in the beginning you created them male and female. Lord, and we pray for those who are confused about this. Lord, we pray for your truth to be revealed. This, this mystery that you revealed to us, Lord, may be revealed to, to them as well, Father God. We pray for those who would oppose your gospel, Lord, and your design and the way that you created man and woman. Lord, we, we pray that they would come to repentance, Lord. Lord, we know that your word is true, Lord, and that no force that man can, can come up with, can, can successfully oppose it, Lord. Your word is living and active and sharper than any sword, any weapon. Father God, and we trust in it, Lord. And we stand up for it. And we obey it and we defend it, Lord, with everything that we've got. So Lord, I thank you for your word, Father God. Thank you that you uh, communicate to us through it, Lord, and that you have uh, given us truth and wisdom and life. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.